You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. I'm Helen Farmer and this is Farmer's Kitchen. Introducing you to everyone from the producers to coconut oil and tea, all the way to some of the most incredible chefs on the planet. On today's episode, we're speaking to Chef Michael Mina, talking Irish food with Chef Kevin from Hilton Al Sif, learning about how art and food are coming together at Japanese hotspot Netsu, and taking a trip to Paris, learning about one of the most beautiful afternoon teas in town. This is Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. And we love introducing you to the industry insiders. We're going to be speaking to chefs this afternoon. And right now, if you do wonder through the aisles of Spinneys, you will come across a brand called Earth's Finest. With us now is the CEO, Sanka De Silva, speaking to us from Edinburgh, I understand, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Helen? I'm really well. Now, I'm not just saying this because you're on the show, but I'm actually a huge, huge fan of your brand. I use your coconut oil all the time. It's just fantastic. So I'm, But I actually don't know much about it, so I'm really curious to find out a little bit of background about you, about the business, what you're all about, your mission, and what's been happening behind the scenes. So yeah. can we start with the name, Earth's Finest? Where did, the, where did the concept come from? And tell us a little bit about the positioning when it comes to the branding as well. Yeah, I mean, I think when we were starting off, uh, the name actually came from uh, literally wanting to be the the best the earth could offer. So, so we had this philosophy. We said, whatever the products you're launching, and let's look at what's the finest source that we can get that from. And in most of the time, it's a country, right? So you would actually say Sri Lanka is known for coconuts, and Chia Quinoa is in Peru, Bolivia, all those countries that which are known for. And we said, well, let's select that country and the best one. And then we we start with that. So when we did, uh, so from a brand point of view, that was our starting point. And we didn't really have a huge amount of sustainability credentials or thought through at that stage. And But then and that evolved more through kind of from my personal side and being interested in it. Mm. And my goodness, that's absolutely flourished you're the first organic brand here in the uae on the food front to be certified as zero carbon by the sustainable future group so tell us a little bit about that what does that actually mean can you explain some of the criteria and what that actually means to us as customers as well asanka yeah um so um i mean we all actually produce carbon emissions and about our day-to-day life and also when we produce goods and services now, what we wanted to do was we first wanted to understand what's our impact on the planet and as things stand. So the starting point for that was understanding how much emissions that we are contributing to all the global emissions. Now, what we went, we went back, we looked at the last 12 months, we looked at and um, what is actually our transportation actually emit and what is actually when working from home costs like for me uh, i work from home quite a bit Mm -hmm. and what does our office actually emit and what's the energy source for that so we had a comprehensive look at and even delivering our goods to the retailers like spinnies what does that actually take as emissions so we looked at all of that and then uh, that built us actually a baseline which would say which said we we actually consumed an X amount of carbon emissions over the past 12 months. Then it was, how do we minimize that and that going forward? So what are the decisions that we're going to make from that and to say, and how can we, um, how can we actually be more efficient? Mm -hmm. And then also uh, what we've already done, there's a little that you can do about what you've already consumed, but you can do something good for the planet. And that's where and we work with some renewable energy actually partners to offset that emissions that we've uh, we've committed. Can I ask you, Asanka, what are some of the big myths, yeah. myths and misconceptions about sustainable food? You know, we talk about the importance of local and that definitely plays a part, but it's not always the most sustainable choice, I understand. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the key thing around the, the sustainability is it's a very complex subject, and I don't profess to be an expert on it. And I'm trying every day to learn a little bit more in my field. And I think that's what I encourage anyone to do is to just see: can you relate it to your life or to your work, and then try to understand more. So, looking at from that angle. 
And I think the the real um, factors actually, or facts if you look at it, and we have 8 billion population right now. And we know by 2050, that's going to be 50 billion, sorry, a 10 billion population. And that's an increase of 25% population. Now, so then you look at the food as a whole, the whole food system is responsible for 30% of uh, global uh, carbon emissions. So it's a significant part. Now, the challenge now is we all know as a, as a, as a planet, we have to reduce our carbon emissions. How do we do that? And while feeding 2 billion extra people mm-hmm. in the next 25 years or so. And I think that's a real challenge. People don't recognize that as a challenge because on one side, we only hear we have to reduce, we have to reduce, we have to reduce, which is true. But then how do you do that while increasing the um, like the actual supply? It's interesting to think about. So, it's, it's, it's a challenge, yeah. but it's also a huge opportunity. Yeah. There's an awful lot of money to be made in this space for, for people. And I'm not talking about, you know, brands or companies such as yours necessarily. But when we think about, you know, food production and changing it on a, on a grand scale, it's actually going to be quite exciting, I think, to think about some of the creative solutions uh, that people come up with. I know, absolutely, because I think what we sometimes actually forget is uh, the sustainability is a doom and gloom for a lot of people. It doesn't have to be. It's actually, there's a huge positive case, just like you outlined. There are lots and lots of opportunities. And I think even for any business, there's a lots of cost savings they can have. Like you can switch your energy source and, and find like there's a lot of actually solar energy that could be used in the UAE. And by switching and going into greener solutions, and there's a cost savings that you can build into your business. And then, and that might actually in turn attract new talent because we know younger people, they're more likely to be sustainably conscious than actually, let's say, our generation. <laughs> and so all of that, I think there's a huge positive case that, that's, that's there for sustainability. I agree. I think it's really interesting to hear from your point of view, from a food production and um, manufacturing point of view, because we speak to a lot of chefs about what they're doing in the kitchen and getting food on the plate and, and rightfully thinking about us as consumers when it comes to, you know, planning our supermarket shopping. So we're not overbuying and, you know, having that dying lettuce in the in the fridge or, you know, not planning and end up throwing out meat or, or over ordering in a restaurant and that ending up in food waste in, in, the, in the kitchen. So to come back to that manufacturing, I think is really interesting. Um, Asanka, we're going to keep you with us. Um, so we've got the CEO of Earth's Finest today. We're going to talk about what is in that range and why next. He's the man behind, I have to I'm, I, I'm not shy about saying this, really delicious coconut oil with, with vanilla that I use to make energy balls all the time. But what else could we be adding to our baskets this weekend? We'll be finding out. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. Joining us live on the line is the CEO of Earth's Finest, Anka De Silva, with us. Now, you are Sri Lankan, I understand, sir. Tell us a little bit about yeah. how you have been working with your native country and are, are any of the products in the range from home? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm originally Sri Lankan. Um, I moved to UK actually in 2005, so it's nearly 20 years since I moved. Um, but um, Sri Lanka still holds a very uh, dear place to me. And so all our um, coconut-based products and tea, they come from Sri Lanka. And uh, the way we do it, actually, I mean, we have, we have a, actually a base in Sri Lanka and we have a significantly large enough uh, quality team because I think that's one thing that I'm really keen on is making sure our products are inspected by hand and we go through all, the, all that process to ensure there's nothing that ends up on a shelf has any sort of defects. It might actually be a visual defect, but we don't want that. Um, and uh, and then we're working with actually farmers in some areas so that we can actually give back something to, uh, to the community. As I've touched on earlier, the, the range you were just talking there about coconut, I mean, the coconut oil that I've had from you guys is yeah. absolutely delicious, but there's quinoa, you've got Himalayan salt, tea you mentioned as well. Um, how do you kind of grow sustainably? Are you planning to add any more products to, you know, to the to the website, to the shelves yeah. over the coming year or so? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it's fairly challenging. I think the way we look at it is organic food we know have a lower carbon footprint than non-organic food. So that's kind of our first actually differentiator. I would say obviously Himalayan salt doesn't actually qualify under that, but the rest of the range will only do uh, organic food. Um, now within that, and we're also mindful about actually the, the carbon emissions that you can create, even if you're doing what you're doing. Like, let me give you an example. And sometimes the brands would actually take the product from the source and take it to a different market and then send it back to another country, which in inadvertently and passing the same country twice. Like, let's take a brand which uh, has coconut oil, in this example, going all the way to UK, and then actually shipping it back to Dubai. So, so we've decided as a business, like, whatever we do, and they will have to come from the source to the market that we're actually targeting. Now, we have a base in Denmark, we have a base actually in UK, and we have a base actually in Dubai. But nothing goes to Dubai or so nothing goes to Denmark or UK and come back to UK and UAE. And we made sure that it comes to UAE right from the source. So there's something that we can do uh, easily to actually contribute to managing the emissions. The, so in terms of expansions, and we are looking into a couple of other areas and um, like we want to actually increase um, some of the key staples like pasta or rice or, or in that space. And uh, we're working with it. But one of the key challenges in doing that is can you find the right source with the right sustainability credentials? Uh, because a lot of the time and sustainability has become sexy. So people mm -hmm. tick boxes rather than actually right. really. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think I'm glad that the European Union is now bringing in new laws to actually tackle greenwashing, and which is going to be good because you can't just claim something if you're not backing it up. So, uh, so there are challenges to actually executing it, and but we are working through. So that makes it sometimes we're slower than what we would like to be. But that's the cost of actually doing the business the way we'd like to do. Watch this space. Um, one thing I'd like to say is I hadn't been on the website until today, and you guys do such a lovely job of including recipes for all those products. So I think it does go a long way to making us think about other ways to use the products and ultimately avoid that food wastage that we're trying so hard to avoid. Anka, thank you so yeah. much. Thank you so much for your time, Asaka. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for all you do. You can find us, find us on the shelves at Spinney's and wishing you a lovely weekend ahead, sir. Thank you. Uh, speak yeah. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Take care. And, um, and, and, I'm and thank you for being a customer. Oh, yes, you do have my custom. I really do appreciate it. <laughs> Asanka De Silva, the CEO of Earth's Finest. This is Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. So excited to introduce you to Chef Michael Mina now. He is back in Dubai, I think just until tomorrow at that beautiful Mina Brasserie, unleashing some new creations on some very loyal diners. And I am so happy to have you back in town. How are you, Chef? I'm well. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm curious. What did you have for your lunch today? Have you eaten yet? <laughs> oh, you are so funny. I want to know. <laughs> um, um, yes, I actually have eaten already today. Come on, make me jealous because I had a chicken salad and it was rubbish. What did you have? You had a, you had a chicken salad? Mm. Oh, I love it. Um, well, we tried a couple new dishes today. Um, so today we did a, uh, we're working on a beef carpaccio with a little bit of a truffle vinaigrette and mm. had that for lunch that that was the that was the starter and then uh uh crispy skin bronzino with um fregola and uh caramelized fennel and, and a little uh herb olive oil <laughs> oh that sounds delicious and dessert at lunchtime or is that too decadent even for you <laughs> well didn't have it but um actually been playing around with um, one of the ones that's going to be in my next cookbook. It's a uh, mango basbusa. What's a basbusa? It's a Middle Eastern uh, dessert, but we actually do it very similar to, we bake it actually kind of like a tarte tan. We actually mm. caramelize, we create it like a tarte tan. We'll caramelize the caramel and then put the mangoes in and then bake it upside down and then flip it out. Oh, that sounds a lot better than my 
rubbish chicken salad. <laughs> Chef Michael Media with us today. He has got decades of culinary experience, restaurants all over the world, Mission Stars, James Beard Foundation recognition. So how does it feel to be back in Dubai? And what do you love about I, having a restaurant in our gorgeous city, Chef? Oh, my God. I absolutely love this city. Um, you know, I... Honestly, I love coming here. I get so excited when I'm coming here. And, and what do I love about it? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting question because it's become such, first and foremost, it's, I love, you know, be, being, coming to a city where everything is ever-changing and ever-moving mm-hmm. forward. And so that's always great. But it's such an international city, and, and it's such a foodie city. And so you come here and, you know, being able, the best part about being a chef, you know, hands down, is when you get to cook for your guests and you get to um, push the envelope. And mm-hmm. here you can absolutely push the envelope. And, you know, and, it's, and there's just so much That's going really on here right interesting. now. So, so how do you think Dubai diners then differ to those? And we'll use the States as an example. I know you spend a lot of time in the States. So how do you think we're a different crowd? Well, you know, what's, what's really interesting about Dubai is, um, you know, obviously because of how global it is and even how you bring product in here, you're, the diversity of what you get to use product-wise, you get great product now, mm-hmm. and it's gotten better and better every year. But the diversity of the clientele really enables you to kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, be able to use the globe in how you're in, in how you're looking at and approaching food and thinking about food. And I love the palate because, I mean, I grew up, you know, I grew up in a Middle Eastern household and, and very, very bold flavored food, you know, food, food needed to have flavor. And that's, and that's, a, you know, that's my palate. And so mm-hmm. I love cooking for people that have that palate. And so, that definitely is here. So kind of packing a punch with the flavor. So do you, do you then adjust uh, some of the dishes that you, you know, might have had big hits, you know, in other parts of the world? And do you make tweaks to, you know, for our, for our palates and tastes and habits? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, Mina Brasserie, you know, absolutely the word brasserie has a, has a big meaning to it for me because, you know, it's kind of, it kind of is almost like my journey Mm -hmm. in my culinary career is, you know, obviously going to cooking school at the Culinary Institute of America and then working New York and, uh, and Los Angeles and San Francisco, a lot of European technique in, you know, and that is, you know, shows in, in the brasserie, but then, you know, what I think is really exciting about it is when you take it and you take the ingredients of today and the flavors of a lot of these great spices and, and start to create dishes that really are inspired by some very high level cooking technique, mm-hmm. but then have these really bold flavors and these interesting combinations. And, and so this has really been a fun, you know, I've had a lot of fun with this because I can, you know, cook, you know, everything from traditional French dishes to being able to infuse some of the flavors that I grew up with, um, but still be able to hold, you know, hold, you know, really hold the techniques of, of what a brasserie is all about. Sounds like you're having fun, which is it's always so comes across. Um, so what, what are we loving right now? And we're going to talk about some of the new dishes in just a few minutes, but, you know, historically sure. at Mina Brasserie, what are some of the big hits that you would never take off the menu because they would be out by uh, Chef Michael Mina? Well, the the macaroni and black truffle gratin. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I think that one there would there would be an there would be an outcry for that one. Um, you know, uh, my classic tuna tartare. You know, just because it's uh, been on the menu for a while, so people have really gotten gotten used to gotten used to having that. And um, and actually, um, you know, it, the what I really love is really what we do with all of the meats. And you know, we so we have that we just. We just got it. Just this incredible new wood burning grill. Um, we had one, but we got the we got the latest and greatest version of it, and so it's been great. And so, you know, I think that one of the things that I really love is all of the different cuts of meat we have, but then we offer them in four preparations that all four of them are really exciting. You know, from steak rostini, you know, with the with foie gras and truffle and potato and spinach to a poivre with peppercorn. Um, you know, and so we just really have a lot of fun with being able to cook the meats and, and, you know, I think that, um, probably on the fish side, um, we do, uh, I would say that that bronze, you know, that I just told you about that one has mm-hmm. been on the menu now for a while. 
and we're not we're not going to be taking that off anytime. Good. <laughs> Just what I wanted to hear. I was like, oh, you're making me hungry for a Bronzina now. Okay, <laughs> so let's talk about seasonality. You're talking there about the, you know, the quality of produce that's available, but Dubai is an interesting mm-hmm. one. You know, when we think about that winter season, it's often a time where we as a as a nation are spending more time outside you know sitting in you know in, in outdoor spaces or maybe wanting to eat something sure. lighter because the weather's you know super super enjoyable so how do you adjust for that and, and how has that played into some of the new dishes that you're adding to the, to the menu there at Mina Brasserie? That, that's a that's a really that's a great question and and it's actually so much fun to be honest with you because what we do is we'll follow seasonality um, the same way we would follow it anywhere else in any other city as far as product goes. But you, you actually frame the question perfectly because we will use like, you know, right now is just working on uh, pumpkin soup, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- things of that nature. We will, we will use products that are in season, whether it's, you know, if you get into fall, you're going to move into some of your squashes and like some of like your roast. You know, we just did a just worked on a veal chop dish with um, a caramelized roasted pear um, butter and and, you know, uh, wild mushrooms. And so you're still going to follow the season, but you're absolutely correct. You want to utilize the product, but lighten it up. Mm -hmm. So you might use vinaigrettes instead of heavier meat sauces. You might use, you know, you're going to you know, you're going to use lighter products and be able to lighten it up. And it's, it's really a lot of fun. It's like, you know, being able to play with truffles and using them in a light way <laughs> as opposed to you know, usually like it's very decadent. Yeah, it's like, like a creative challenge, I guess, for you, for you and the team there. I, I wanted to ask you, Chef, about, um, well, you're here to kind of gauge, I guess, the reaction from some of the Dubai diners to these dishes. What are you <laughs> looking for in a reaction to go, yeah, we've nailed it. That's a keeper. <laughs> well... Okay, so I always judge a dish, honestly, you know, as a chef, um, you know, I, I've been through all of the phases because I've been doing it for a long time in the sense of, you know, cooking the 17 course meals for people and, you know, that are all two bites. And I still love to do that. It's, I still enjoy to do, doing that. But really, the real challenge, I think, is to create an entree that's 30 bites and to keep somebody's attention the whole time and where they don't want to put their fork down because mm-hmm. that really takes a lot of thought with the dish and it takes a lot of work on the balance because something that's two or three bites, you can really spike the flavors and have, you know, really intense flavors that, you know, might give you a quick wow. Mm-hmm. But to keep somebody's attention you know, through a dish, through 30 bites of a dish, you have to really think about acid, sweet, spice, and fat, and how do you balance those, you know, flavors, and then make the dish interesting with textures and everything else, and usually, like today, we've been working on a dish that I'm just, finally, like, sometimes you work on a dish for a while, and then you get to a point where you're like, okay, today, it's the day, you know, you kind of drop the mic, it's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? So, it's really fun, because it's a it's a it's a wagyu beef dish that we've been doing, but I, we do a triple sear on it. And so what we do is we actually crust it in Florida cell and salt, and crust the whole, um, really like the strip loin, but and then grill it on the wood burning grill. Then we rinse it. We give it a rinse in a non alcoholic sake, and then we grill it again. Mm-hmm. Then we give it another rinse in soy sauce. And we grill it again and get a caramelization on it. And then we do it with this really spicy uh, red pepper sauce. It's kind of like a machpucha sauce mm-hmm. where it's got, you know, um, it's got car- uh, cumin, clove, a little bit of clove, um, cardamom in it, um, coriander, a lot of spices, cayenne pepper. Um, and then we do it with smashed sweet potatoes that are olive oil smashed sweet potatoes with all sorts of herbs in them and then finish it with a little meat sauce. Um, and so what you get is you get all of these different kind of the sweetness from the sweet potatoes, the spiciness from the pepper sauce, the, the richness from the meat, and then the acidity from the soy and the sake. And it just like really, really well balanced. And so that, so to me, that's the way that I like to think about food is, you know, how are you going to create a dish that's going to, you know, have all of these 
that's going to be able to balance like these flavors together. Mm-hmm. It's, it's art and, and science then, coming together with, my goodness, Chef Michael Mina making tummies rumble across the UAE <laughs> right now. Thank you so much for your time today. I really, my really pleasure. value it. I'm, I'm, you're in Dubai until tomorrow, I believe. So you, are you going to be in the kitchen at Mina Brasserie tonight? You're going to be out on the floor yes. gauging reactions? Yes, I will. Yes. I will. Yeah. All right. Well, enjoy uh, every second and and right. come back soon. I can't wait to try some Thank of those. You. They sound absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Chef Michael Mina, Thank have a good you. and all the very best to you and the team. Mina Brasserie, new dishes on the menu, but don't worry, not getting rid of any of those old favourites. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. Meeting the chef now with Kevin Coey. He's the cluster executive chef at Hilton Alsip Hotels. Decades of experience going from County Antrim to Dubai via the Seychelles. And thank you for making time for a chef, especially on a Friday. I know how busy you are. How's things? It's an absolute pleasure to be here. In fact, it's nice to get a wee break from the kitchen <laughs> to come and see how the other half live on a Friday <laughs> afternoon. Just take a load off, sit down, Just have relax. a chat. I'm still stuck in your films with food, I'm telling you. Oh, I Maybe know. I get, I get confused here. Huh? I know. It's, it's great though, isn't it? My husband's been sending me endless messages about this. I was like, you can't win. You're a friend of the show. Um, <laughs> chef, tell us a little bit about growing up in Northern Ireland. I heard your grandparents had a fruit and veg shop. What impact do you think that had on on your perceptions of food and produce and growing and seasonality even? Well, basically, my uh, grandfather and my grandmother, they lived in a town in Cookstown, if anybody that's familiar with it. Uh, they owned a fruit and veg shop. My grandfather was a plumber by trade, but he should have been a chef because he was awesome. Uh, I spent all my summers there. I spent everything with them. Basically, they taught me. So basically, when all other six-year-olds were playing with Lego and stuff, I was making hollandaise, <gasps> uh, homemade mayonnaises, preserves, jams, all this kind of stuff. Um, what used to happen, my, my grandmother used to have a big clientele that used to come to the shop, and her thing would be to cook them lunch. And it, it ranged from stews to soups to pates to, and then give them jars of jam to take home. So they'd and come I, in shopping and she'd be like, sit she down. She gives them away. Yeah. She was the worst shopkeeper ever. She never made money. <laughs> Joking. But anyway, and uh, I pretty much got the bug from there. And when we stayed there with her, they loved to eat out. They loved the hospitality industry. They loved travel, tourism, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, they used to take me to restaurants and watching these restaurants operate from such a young age. And I was able to, I was, I'm, I'm old enough, I'm sorry to say, to, to see how restaurants have evolved from the old classics back, like old school, to what we are now. Mm-hmm. And to watch that evolve just amazed me and uh, it just took me on the course to where I am so today. So all those inner workings of what's happening in the kitchen and, and working your way up yeah. to the ranks, I really. Tell, tell us a little bit about um, your training, because you, you trained in Balamina. I trained in Balamina, Troston Avenue. Your grandmother would know that very well. <gasps> wow. Uh, Funny thing is, my grandpa was a semi-professional footballer and he played for Balamina Crusaders and then he got signed to Tottenham Hotspur. Wow. I know. And he was a shipbuilder um, and he got went over to the UK and had TB and had to come back and keep working as a shipbuilder. My God. I know. So Balamina is a, a place that I've been to and certainly something we've talked about a lot in our family and yeah. it's where you learnt the trade professionally even though you'd obviously had lots of experience with the grandparents what was that like it was it was amazing uh, when i when i was at school i wasn't very good at school i have to tell you anything practical awesome anything you have to sit in a room forever no it doesn't work for me so when i got to college it opened my mind because i was allowed to do things practically cook create and it opened my mind and i just loved it like i never missed a day of college i was always there i'd done extra for it and I went back to it. And from there, I got to, I got in through the door. It was a stack of hotels at that time that opened up in Temple Patrick. And uh, I started there for a year and then Hilton took them over. Oh, wow. Ah. So that was 1999 I started working for Hilton. That's nearly 24 oh, years ago. Gosh. Uh, unbelievable. I started more or less as far down the ladder you can go. All right. What were we doing? Uh, we were literally peeling... Millions of shallots (laughs) all day, every day. We were getting shouted at. We were making tea for the chefs. We were getting... You know how it goes in the old school that HR wouldn't tolerate now. Well, this is the thing. and I often make this army comparison about, like, it was know, regimented, work, eh? working your way up through the ranks. Um, for anyone that's not familiar with Northern Irish food, yes, can you take? Can you share some of your? Favorites? Some people in Dubai now that are very healthy and stuff, and you know what I'm going to say right now. If you go back, <laughs> Northern Irish food is very much about saturated butter, man. They yeah, love it. Sticks to your uh, ribs. Potato breads, soda breads. Black puddings, all the fatty meats that have to go through there. The legs of lamb, like my grandmother, when she was cooking a leg of lamb, she would have cut the fat off and ate it. She wouldn't have <laughs> ate the lamb. That's how bad it was. 
Uh, she would have kept the dripping of it, the fryer chips in it. Roast potatoes are done in duck fat and this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, but uh, what I love about Northern Irish food is, is uh, some people say you get great seafood around the world. There's no better seafood around the bays of Dublin, Scotland, Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lobsters, the shellfish and all. Like when I come to Dubai, I have to say now, when I come to Dubai, I expect the big things, but... When you go back home and you see what you've got, you, you don't realise what you've got till it's gone, as well, they say. it's funny you say that because my uncle has a cottage on the Antrim Coast Road and we had some amazing holidays up there and all of my memories are around food from that part of the world. My Just grandfather gorgeous. had a caravan in a place called Ardara and it's in County Donegal uh, outside Killy Beggs. Killy Beggs is one of the biggest fish distributors in the south of Ireland. And his caravan was literally on Ardara Beach. It was called the Dolyans Beach and he had lobster pots in there. And we used to get fried like lobsters used to come out hell half, half a meter long, yeah. And then you come here and they look like shrimp. You're like, <laughs> what, what's going on, man? And uh, so watching him doing that again got me like my favorite thing to cook in the world is fish. Uh, it's fantastic. I love the diversity of it. You can do anything you want with it. You can make a fish dish last for hours or you can cook it in 10 minutes. Now, it's that cool. You found yourself in the Seychelles as well for work. Um, tell us about that experience because you got competitive, I understand, as well. You won some competitions so, over there. Seychelles, uh, I got the opportunity to go and work. I got a phone call one day and I said, you want to go on the work at Seychelles? And it took me all of three seconds to say <laughs> yes. And again, with Hilton, everything's been with Hilton. Uh, so I went there. And uh, it turned out that the food quality was good, but it could be better. And uh, we got we got very competitive when I, we actually started uh, Seychelles. There's three hotels there, which is La Breeze, North Home and Alamanda. And the exec chef at the time there, I wasn't the exec chef when I first went there. He asked me, look, let's start a competition team. And we did. We started a competition team and it became pretty successful. We had four gold medals, three silver, all in the first year that we'd done it. So what's it like then cooking to compete rather than cooking for normal service is it, you know in terms of discipline and skills involved there's discipline you need to tone your craft very well mm. and if you're going to cook one dish in a competition you can't get away with any error whatsoever so what, everything has to be on point looking back at that time of competitive cooking was there a dish that you were thinking yeah absolutely nailed it on that one I had a dish that I absolutely nailed and we used New Zealand rack of lamb. Now we had it imported and we t- I put a wee bit of my grandmother's cooking in there and we had, I basically done a trio of lamb and we took the cannon of the lamb, we rolled it in black pepper and porridge oats and we, we seared it and we served it medium rare on pea puree, the green of Ireland coming. And then we done a nice rack of lamb cannon and we done it traditionally with the herb crust on it. And then with the access lamb, I made a, a lamb and kidney pudding. Oh my goodness. We done it with suet pastry. Like I had to get the badness in there, no? <laughs> that sounds amazing. Fresh vegetables and it cleaned up. It, it cleaned up. And then, so then you brought your skills to Dubai where I understand there was a Guinness World Record. There was, yes. So my culinary director for Hilton, he uh, he phoned me one day and he says, do you want to take part? And a lot of hotels around like Jamera and these kind of places were were aiming to break the longest line of pies. So we all had to bake nearly, I think it was 400 pies each. And we lined the whole way in Madden at Jamera with these lines of pies. Now, don't ask me how long the line was meant to be because I can't remember now. (laughs) But But yours was the longest. It broke all records, yes. What pie pie were you making? It was pear pies, so the pears were sponsored by USA Pears, so it was a lot, very much in coordination with them to do it. That sounds delicious. And we got the certificate that now hangs, I think, in Double Three JBR, where it used to be. So World record holder, Chef Kevin Coey's with us today. So what does your role involve now? You're a cluster exec chef there at Hilton Al Seif. So is there such thing as a typical day with you looking after those three properties and so many guests? Listen, see, when... If my day ever becomes a typical day, I think I will hang the apron up because that's what I love about my job. Uh, when I go in and work, when I, on a busy day, all hotels are full. You're looking running between 700 to 1,000 breakfasts to look after Gosh. in three different hotels split over. Different brands, different standards need to be met. So you have to get that right first. Uh, that's a challenge in itself, but it's very exciting. You get to evolve. Like the, the beauty of three brands is you can evolve Within reason, mm-hmm. but you get every day is different and everything. You're not stuck to one script. It becomes very, very good. And over the three hotels, we've got six restaurants here that vary from a pool bar to an Arabic restaurant to a Mediterranean restaurant to an all-day dining. So there's everything's there. The variety's there. So plenty of guests, but plenty of staff as well. What do you like as a boss or a mentor, do you think? I would like to think my team see me as firm but fair, I would say. Uh, I have a very open-door attitude. Uh, I work probably, I get criticised quite a bit for being too on the floor with the team. 
Because I like, listen, if you're not with them, how do you know what's going on in your kitchen? Well, exactly that. And also seeing food going out and seeing, you know, Dinah's reaction. Because I think, I mean, I think about this when, when I was writing for work. You know, I got into magazines. So I, I love writing. And the more senior I got, the more I was editing. And it, yeah. I was moving away from actually writing how I got into it. And, you know, chef friends of mine are like, well, I got into this because I love cooking I love you know working with my hands and you know seeing the reaction but the more senior you get you spend more time with the spreadsheet than you do in the kitchen so I guess it's getting that balance it's tough to get the balance sometimes and sometimes it's tough to manage your time Uh, you need to be able to stay no to people and I find that very difficult to be brutally honest Mm -hmm. Uh, but when it does get a bit much you do have that advantage where I can go to the kitchen and just forget about it for an Mm -hmm. hour and nobody's ever going to question it of course not whoever went the chef's in the kitchen there's a problem (laughs) you know what I mean uh, so what, so so what about favourite dishes right now? What are you What are you proud of the team for serving up? And I guess what I'm asking you, Chef Kevin, is to make us hungry this afternoon. Okay, so there's a classic one down in Sabat Restaurant in Curio. Uh, we took the classic beef Wellington. I love old rustic dishes like beef wellingtons and, and the cods and this kind of stuff. So what we done, we took the traditional lamb uzi and we turned it into a lamb uzi wellington. Oh, that's clever. It's magical, that, and it's all encased in pastry. You've got your rice in between it. You've got the braised lamb. And then we do the braised lamb shank, so there's, there's a duo of lamb in there. We braise it down, we pack it up, and we make the rich jus out of the, over the top of it. And then we serve it with pomegranate, molasses, oh. and we pour it over the top. It's like, picture a sweet sticky lamb hot pot that just is my happy place as soon as you said pomegranate molasses I can feel my mouth watering I have uh, it almost every day for my breakfast with Labne and Zatar and it's my one of my favourite people don't use it enough it's class and then uh, what it's we class. do is, is class like <laughs> there's the Irish coming out on me and uh, then we the dessert we have we make our own baklava down there and we make rose water phyllo pastry crust and we've taken instead of having the unhealthy ice cream we make a yoghurt ice cream nice, with fresh. local honey and we put it down. So see, once you have that that lamb wellington and the richness and all, and then you get that nice dessert to cut it at the end with a nice Arabic coffee, it's fantastic. Guys. That sounds divine. I've got to send you back to the kitchen now, Chef Kevin. Thank oh, you come so... Come on, it's been great. I know, I know. Thank you so much for coming in. Absolute it's pleasure. It's been really, really lovely to hear your story and where you've been in the world and it's great to have you here in Dubai it's been five years now and you're feeling happy and settled we're going to have you around a bit longer happy and settled I'd stay a wee bit longer I think yeah. And uh, but make sure you come and visit me down our brunch will be open very soon on the 21st of October and all these delights that I talk about homegrown and stuff Yeah, it's, it's all, all going to be there it's fire and ice is the theme there's a lot of raw there's a lot of tradition there's a lot of rustic Nick. so the 21st of October we'll be opening let's go brilliant fantastic chef Kevin Coe the exec chef there for the cluster Hilton Al Seif. I'm craving lamb now. I think if I won that 500 dirhams to spend in Spinney's, I'd be going along yeah. and getting some lamb. Absolute pleasure. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinney's. Eat well, live well. We love talking about food on Fridays, introducing you to the producers, the restaurateurs, and of course the chefs. And we've now got Ross Shonen with her today. He is known for his incredible concept, Natsu, at the Mandarin Oriental. And he's with us now. He's got stars to his name and has got plans afoot for a fantastic collaboration. How are you, Chef? What's going on? I'm really good, thank you. Good to have you back. Um, for anyone that's not familiar with you and your work, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got into food in the first place? Look, at the end of the day, um, I, I grew up in the middle of uh, uh, Queensland in Australia on a cattle farm and I think getting into food was not an obvious career path at all mm. although um, the food we ate we grew a lot of it ourselves and it was a very kind of natural rural lifestyle but definitely not romantic like uh, <laughs> you know you see some of these TV shows these days of people you know getting a small farm somewhere and producing everything they eat no, um, it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of small holding. It was, uh, it was big land, big beasts, hard work. Exactly, exactly. And I ran away from it as soon as I could to the city and found myself um, washing dishes in a in a kitchen. And I think uh, that was that was the starting point, really. Um, do you think it gave you respect for produce when you think when you think back with that chef's hat on? Oh, massively, so to speak? yeah, massively. There was far more you know relevance to it looking back than than i knew at the time Mm. and i think it definitely gave me a good understanding of you know not just the quality of things but just the effort that goes into them so Mm. you know that's always driven me to 
um, ensure that we work hard to not waste anything mm-hmm. along the way as well, which is very important to me because there's so much energy goes into the most basic basic of things that, you know, I think a chef's role is to extract as much flavor from it as possible at That's the very least. It's, it's really interesting when we think about food wastage because it starts, you know, all the way from the farm to, you know, to us as diners and you know, yep. the role that chefs have in that is so, so crucial. I mean, to be thinking obviously about the bottom line when you, when you are working there as, you know, exact, exact chef, head chef. Um, so, yeah, as you're saying, that, that real nose to tail, but also well, it's, it's, the, it's the way energy. the menu's put together as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's, it, it's, yeah. Look, and we, we consciously, um, I've just always done it, but we've always just looked at what are the things that aren't easy to use on the menu mm. and then, you know, work out how we can um, try to find ways to, to incorporate them into the menu. And as I said, even if it's just as simple as extracting flavor from, from you know, peelings or, you know, from vegetables or, or other things, but if it's got taste, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't belong in the bin. And uh, and you know that's just respect to all of the energy that that you know human energy, let alone um, actual tangible energy of fuel and other things that it takes to get something grown all the way to to a kitchen. You know, and how many hands and people have to touch it to get to that point. Absolutely right. So for anyone that hasn't been to Netsu there at the Mandan Oriental Jumeirah, it's a great brunch. My goodness, and you've got some drama. Um, you've got. A technique which I'm going to let you pronounce and explain. Tell us about that Japanese cooking technique that you're firing up in the kitchen. So we specialize in something called a wariyaki. And a wariyaki is a unique style of cooking, straw fire cooking, um, from the Kochi region in Japan. And it's a really unusual style of cooking in that uh, it's not well known. Mm. But what it does is it gives a real burst of uh, flavour at the end of um, at the end of the cooking process, and it brings a real kind of campfire cooking taste to things. And then on top of that, you know what's what's fun about it? I think from a guest point of view, is it's very theatrical as well. It's sky high flames, chef. Really, yeah. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot of fun. High, six foot high flames, almost. Yeah. Yeah, and you've yeah. got you. Yeah. And not that it does matter, but it kind of does. You have that kind of Instagram moment of this is how my food was cooked, and it's uh, it all comes together with, as you say, it's not just you know fashion, but it's also function in, in the taste that you're getting into the food using using those techniques. Now, well, with, sorry, this go is on. it. You get you, you get a burst of that kind of theatre for the flames, but you also get a burst of flavour. And so it's not it's not style over substance. Mm-hmm. There is a real there is a real point to it, um, and the real point is to actually uh, you know not only tell the story of kochi, but to give that flavour to the food along the way. What are some of your favourite things on the menu at Netsu right now, and, and what's got diners excited? I always think it's quite interesting to think about the not only the contradiction, but the, the two sides of what's the chef proud to put on plate, and what are diners gravitating towards? What's hot right now? Well, very good question. Look, I think, uh, you know, in really simple terms, I wouldn't allow anything on the menu that um, I wasn't proud to serve. Mm -hmm. Um, I think where we try to separate ourselves from our competition a little bit is is we have to have that one foot in the realms of things that people are comfortable with or familiar with what they think of Japanese food and you know I give California roll as the as the kind of example of that mm-hmm. you know it's it's the bread and butter of of probably Japanese people's ex- entry level into Japanese restaurants and then it just stays with them and then you know but we've always tried to push beyond that you know I intentionally don't have black cod miso on the menu mm-hmm. and uh you know given that I worked for a lot of restaurants where that was very popular, it would almost be very easy to do that. But, uh, but you know, we, I want to try to demonstrate that we can have a menu that doesn't have every one of those basic things that every other Japanese restaurant seems to have. So so we push beyond that. And again, the wariyaki is a good way of doing it to add a, you know, USP into our cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I love just the simple things like wariyaki oysters, uh, which we you know grill over the grill over the flame and then just dress really simple with some ponzu and momiji oroshi daikon, which is grated daikon with chili. Um, that is a real classic um, dish when you go to somewhere like Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, they cook them on the streets there because around Hiroshima they grow a lot of grow a lot of oysters. Oh, really? Okay. Um, Here's a weird fun fact: that my parents yeah. lived, lived there after they left the UAE, so I was made in Hiroshima. I was conceived Were you? there. Wow, yeah. amazing! And I haven't been. Japan's wow. been on my bucket list. I mean, certainly for nature and exploring, but definitely for food for the longest time. And I think you've just completely sealed the deal there. I'm like oysters on the street in the city that my parents Absolutely. lived in. This sounds amazing. <laughs> And they grill them. And so an oyster in Japanese is called gaki. Grilling is called yaki. And so everywhere on the streets you can get yaki gaki in, <laughs> in Hiroshima, uh, which is fun. Oh, it sounds amazing. Know? Chef, we are going to come back and find out exactly what you have been working on behind the scenes. as a special collaboration at Netsu at the Mandan Oriental. Joining us on the line, Chef Ross Shonham. It's afternoons with me, Helen Farmer, Farmer's Kitchen, talking food this Friday. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. Great to have you with us and great to be joined now by Chef Ross Shonham. He is speaking to us from Netsu. He's in Dubai for a short amount of time for a very special collaboration, really taking those Japanese roots at the restaurant chef to the next level. And we talked earlier about theatre, but this is art coming into play as well. Who are you working with and, and what's going on? Look, we're working with a, um, a really fascinating guy named Charles, and he uh, he's from Belgium, and he's he's one of these incredible uh, individuals who's applied his his you know curiosity and I guess his skill to multi disciplines, and so he trained as an artist. He's, he does um, uh, you know really immersive dinners all over the world, and yet at the same time. Um, sorry, I said he trained as an architect, mm. and you know he trained in Kyoto, and I think at that point was also uh, you know gripped by a passion for Japan culture and 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 curiosities of Japan, and and I guess in his mind, talking to him, you know, architecture and origami um, uh, that sung to him, you know, the discipline of origami. And so the guys, you know, become a, a, a fabulous artist applying these these multi uh, disciplines to his work, and he creates these amazing origami installations around the world. And so we we asked him to come to Netsu and, and to produce one. And he's in in Netsu Interiors. We focus a lot on um, Kabuki theatre, mm-hmm. partly because. Uh, you know the the, the theatre of this wariyaki cooking that we we talked about just before, and so we asked him to to produce an installation for us, which which he produced this amazing um, mask kabuki mask out of origami, mm-hmm. and and you know he's just one of those fabulously creative people that that you know I think are just a joy to be around really. Are you adapting the menu in any way as in celebration? Is we going to see any origami-inspired dishes happening? Look, we've we've got a few little secrets up our sleeves oh, really? um, that we'll do. But but at the but the thread that we wanted to try and talk about really is this this juxtaposition of a kind of instant gratification of you know particularly in his work of this kind of initial visual impression that you get of this work, and then. You know the the understanding. The more you look at it, of the amount of time it takes to uh, to produce it, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of more the thread we we're talking about with regards to our food as well. Where we we there's these ingredients that take years to make, like miso, you know, great quality miso paste and soy sauce and things that we use. That again, you know, you put them in your mouth and they're gone in seconds. They give you instant gratification without really second thought as to the time and the craftsmanship that go into it. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of more the more the theme of these two two disciplines coming together. Really, is that both take skill and knowledge and time to learn. Both take skill, knowledge, and time to produce. And I think that's the same with you know cooking over these wariyaki flames, cooking you know in, in, over charcoal and these things that we do to the to I think the the precise level that we try to achieve. You know that's that's been best part of thirty years of my life um, mm. trying to get to that point. You know, You've re- you you paint such a beautiful picture because you know we think about going out for food and you know yes we want to fill our bellies and try new things, but. It is often about this sense of 
education sounds boring. That's not what I mean. But I guess discovery and thinking and communication. And well, you, there can be this bite, as you say, it's fleeting. But when we, when we know about what's been happening that gets us to that point, it, it's just, it makes it so much more valuable. Exactly. And this is, you know, one of the things I've always tried to do in my restaurants, um, and again, Charles does as well with his work, is we're trying to tell stories because in, in particularly of Japan and Japanese culture, that go beyond the initial stereotypes of Mount Fuji, you know, sushi, sumo wrestlers, mm-hmm. for example, and a couple of those real basic, obvious stereotypes that, that people think of when they first think of Japan. And because both him and I have, you know, st- traveled around Japan relatively extensively and and immersed ourselves in those con- in, in that culture as best we can... Mm-hmm we've got experiences that I think go beyond those superficial layers. We try to bring those, you know, to the surface in our work. And that's, you know, we do it with every one of our dishes. We've done it a lot with, uh, you know, with the interior design, the different collaborations that we do where we, we're just really trying to tell stories of, uh, you know, Japan in a, in, in a way that goes beyond the surface, in a way to ultimately encourage people to go and discover for themselves. Well, you've done that with me this we're, afternoon. We're not employed by, by the Japanese government, just so you know, although we probably shouldn't although be I, I'm, of tourism or absolutely, something. Well, exactly that. I'm going to be going, uh, yeah. hopefully going soon to see where it all began for me. But my goodness, in the meantime, yeah. Netsu, thank you so much, Chef. I really appreciate your time. I know it's very busy right now um, in the kitchens there. So thank you for hopefully sitting down and having a bit of a, a bit of a rest and a chat with us. Uh, Netsu is open this weekend. Is brunch on Saturday afternoon? Yeah, yeah, Saturday, Good absolutely. Yep, 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 yep. Well, it's great to have you back in town, and I think this sounds like an absolutely beautiful meeting of minds and uh, ending up with a feast for the eyes, a feast for all the senses. Chef Ross, have a wonderful afternoon ahead. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. This is Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Spinneys. Eat well, live well. Prepare to be transported to the streets of Paris now. Bijou Patisserie at Sofitel Dubai, the obelisk, has a brand new afternoon tea and it sounds absolutely exquisite. Le Goutet Vault, crafted by esteemed executive pastry chef Romain Cassé. Thank you so much for being with us and especially on a Friday. I know how busy you guys are, so we're having a little relax in the studio today and talking food. Um, Chef, before we start talking about afternoon teas, you can't win this prize. I'm sorry. You're you're a guest. You're a friend of the show. But if I was to give you 500 dirhams to spend in Spinney's as a pastry chef or just a man who loves great food, what would you spend that money on? Honestly, now I would tell you uh, meat. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Good meat. <laughs> Good meat, yes. A lot, of, a lot of the chefs I speak to, they're like, oh, the Spinney's lamb's amazing or the tomahawk. I'm with you. You have like a really... Yep. We're getting into barbecue season. Yeah, exactly. It feels right. <laughs> Let's go sweet, though. Why pastry, chef? Why pastry? Uh, good question. So, um, I don't know. I start as a, as a kitchen chef because my father was a, was a chef. Uh, yes. And my mother uh, was taking care of the dessert. So, I start as a, as a kitchen. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small village, uh, not too far to Paris. Um, yeah, a small village in the countryside. So both parents, good cooks. Then. Yeah, good cooks. And they was, uh, they was owning their own restaurant when I was, uh, was a child. So I was helping in the kitchen uh, with them and everything. So. This was inevitable. Yeah, definitely. Now, I speak a lot to a lot of chefs who get into the kitchen early. And uh, to their mind, early is like 14, 15, 16, you know, jobs at the weekend, jobs in the evening. And it is starting at the bottom. We are peeling potatoes yep. and shallots we just heard yeah. is there a pastry equivalent is there like a really menial job that you have to master in order to move up the ranks why well, yeah, there is always something you know they, they start to, to give you the job nobody wants to do it for sure uh, so there is many of that uh, some decoration you have to do it and nobody wants to do it and it's the biggest number mm-hmm. uh, that kind of things definitely uh, so yeah I, I, like everybody I start with, uh, with the, the job uh, not the best one. But, you have uh, to pay your yeah, dues. Exactly. Um, so do you have any early memories of pastry? Have you got any kind of core memories of taste or smell or technique as a child? As a child, yes. Um, I think the one who come first, it was like the tartatin. 
right? Because my father was, is the first uh, dessert my father teach me. Oh. So I was doing at home every time we had a, a guest coming. And uh, it's the first, yeah, technically it's the first pastry I learned. And uh, yeah, so he has a special things with me, oh. for sure. Now, I first came across the word goûter when I was, I think, a, a new mum. And I read a book called French Children Don't Throw Food. You're a dad. <laughs> do, do French children throw food? I don't know if it's all of that, but <laughs> definitely mine teach me that. Okay. And even today, uh, my wife told me all the time, why you have to finish your plate all the time? Because I put on my plate. Uh, I need to finish. Okay. It is like this. <laughs> so for anyone that's not familiar with goûter, the concept of a goûter, yeah. it, it, can you explain a little bit about what it's all about? So what is all about? The goûter for, I think, all the child in France is what you get when you come back from school. So it can be a, a baguette with butter or, uh, I don't know, any paste, uh, jam, jam, jam or something like this. But whatever you get after the school, it is, it is the goûter. I yeah. saw a photo, it might have even been a video on Instagram recently, and it was about exactly this. And it was a French mother who was obviously stunning, picking up her immaculate children and giving them the goûter, which was baguette, mm -hmm. butter, and a piece of chocolate inside. And this I was is, like, that is. looks perfection. Yep. <laughs> so how are you <laughs> elevating the concept of this for your beautiful afternoon tea? Yeah, so we, 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 we try to select the best items we have uh, in, the, in the French patisserie to put them in a very mini version and add in, in, in an attractive box and in other things way. Uh, so we put savory items, of course. So for example, we have uh, a croissant with some fillings inside, some turkey, cheese, French cheese. Uh, we have some tartine. Uh, we have, of course, uh, the cannelé. Cannelé is something uh, really original in France. It's not from everywhere, but it's amazing. And that is uh, like our scones, basically. So you don't have scones? No. This no. is this is radical. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I got so many people asking me, why not? Because oh. it's a French afternoon tea. Yes. A scone's not a thing in France. Exactly. It's no, an English thing. No, de definitely not. If you ask a French guy, do you want the scones? They will tell you no, of course. So how have you been inspired by history then? Because it sounds like you've been cherry picking different eras and areas to, uh, to kind of focus on. Where have you got your inspiration from? Uh, all of the chefs with who I work, uh, you know, you always work for different people and different companies, different classics. So you pick all of this one, you try to make it in your way and uh, in a more, yeah, basically first pastry and, and even savory. First, it's the way it looks. Mm -hmm. it, it needs to attract you. And if the name you know already, you're going to trust that. So you're going to try. And that's what we, we did with, uh, with Le Goûter. Uh, and because uh, our patisserie is called Le Bijou, we we work the concept around this name. So already the restaurant was looking amazing, but we said, you know what, we need to, to create something more than that. It's not only it's not going to be only a pastry with a display and uh, and some pastries. It's going to be an an experience. Well, let's talk about that because I have been to your afternoon tea before for one of the most exquisite baby showers ever. Oh, and it came with a key, a little tiny key to help us unlock elements. Are you still having this sense of theatre and drama and presentation? Yes, we still have. Uh, we, we elevate a little bit the, the experience. So it was, it was a jury box, right? That's right. With a tiny key. Now the key is a little bit more bigger and more pretty, to be honest. Okay. Uh, and now it's, it's a vault. <gasps> because, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about the concept and say, you know what? What's the next for this jury box? We have the jerry box in the... A woman has, has a jerry box in this room. That's no problem. But when you have something more valuable, you put in a vault. This is where the, where the, the big gems are, the big guns. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Now, I want you to make me hungry, um, if you don't mind. Even though you didn't bring me any snacks. <laughs> My goodness. First and last time on the show. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about some of your standout dishes. The, the ones that you are so, so proud for people to put that key in the vault and lock and see and get excited about. All right. So we have uh, now what we, we, we add on the, on the selection. It's a little bit of hot items, warm items. So we serve directly on the table. And we have a, an amazing plain croissant with a traditional bechamel with a conte cheese and, and turkey. And we are slicing some truffle, black truffle on the top. That's something everybody told me, oh, wow, this one. That's, I wish I can bring home and make it try all of my family. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of them. Um, I think in the pastry, we have all of them. I love it, to be honest. But 
the one I love visually is we have we have gold strawberry. What uh, we try to make something jewelry style, and it's a strawberry with a beautiful vanilla mousse inside and strawberry jam and an amazing vanilla uh, biscuit underneath. Oh, wow. And we have another one, which have uh, a wolf fruit chocolate. So it's very unique chocolate. Who's they are using the entire the chocolate maker using the entire fruits chocolate to do this chocolate. It's amazing. With an amazing apricots uh, compote on the top, uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite. And of course, we have the the millefeuille praline. Uh, millefeuille is one of the classic, and when you mix that with uh, the praline, it's it's just amazing. Oh, job done! That sounds absolutely delicious. Now, <laughs> for the three has always been, you know, a feast for the eyes as well as the stomach. It sounds like Instagram might have taken this to the next level, yep. and you guys are there for it. It's a crowded space. We love an afternoon tea in Dubai, but this sounds. So, so special. Um, I've had a question saying where and when, which will be my last question to you, Chef Ramon. Uh, it's at the Bijou Patisserie, Sofitel, Dubai, the Obelisk. Every day, certain days? Every day. Every day uh, during the week, we have uh, between two to six. And yeah, we welcome everybody to come. Okay, that's where I'm, I'm going to be in 5.15. I'm going to get in the car. We're waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> Chef Ramon, thank you so, so much. Thank get you. back to the kitchen. Enjoy yourself. It looks, I had a little nosy on your Instagram and my goodness, it looks absolutely oh, wow. stunning. So huge congratulations to you and the team. Thank Say you. hi to Chef Russell for us here. For sure. <laughs> the, the man, the legend. and The uh, legend, definitely. He is a legend. Yes. Have a great weekend ahead. <laughs> Thanks for being with us on this episode of Farmer's Kitchen. You can tune in live every single Friday afternoon between 2 and 5 on Dubai Eye 103.8.